We're in the middle of a, uh, if you're here for the first week, we're in the middle of a series on uh, passing on our faith to the next generation, uh, really specifically to our children and raising up our children to know and to love Jesus. And, uh, but we think that these are uh, uh, principles and truths that can expand to uh, really all of us in different situations, whether you're coaching or mentoring or uh, maybe you're just here at church and small, younger generations will actually look up to you and those kinds of things. But uh, it's kind of an important uh, topic because the Bible sets up Christianity as a faith that passes generation to generation to generation. And we've talked about that way your personal relationship with God matters and the way your marriage or the way you, if you're a single parent, the way you handle your singleness actually matters in teaching your kids. Then we talked last week about having an open and intentional relationships with your kids. And this week we're going to uh, move into what those actual open relationships should have and having intentional conversations with your children about the faith and about uh, knowing Jesus and those kinds of things. Just so that you know, my kid, uh, his first pair of shoes was uh, Nike Shocks, Vince Carter's. And uh, we grew up in Toronto and in the Toronto area, so it was important that LJ understood that Vince Carter was the greatest dunker in the history of the world. Just ask Freddie Weiss. He was the French guy that he dunked over. So that was really a test to see if there's any real basketball fans here. And uh, the two of you that got that will appreciate it. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, <laughs> LJ's first shirt... Uh, first jersey, I should say, was a LeBron James jersey, and uh, it's really, really, really tiny, and he had a LeBron James hat that came with it, and we actually found it on sale. We were in college at the time, so we were dead broke, and, uh, and that's how that goes, but we found it on sale, and, and it was probably more than we should have spent, but it was important, you know, and, and those kinds of things, and to raise your kids right, you know. Uh, it's, it was funny because that video is actually... Uh, judging me as much as it's judging any of us. So uh, we're going to talk through what that means, though. When you are, uh, if you get the church email, I talked about this a little bit. If you don't get the church email, you can go to the Facebook page and sign up. It's kind of a neat way to get uh, kind of a heads up with things that are going on. But uh, the uh, church email I talked about, just like you did and just like your parents did to you, sometimes my kids, and we have two kids, will fight against each other and do things and and usually it's just because they're kids and they're being silly or whatever. And, and we'll say to them, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry to the other person. And they turn to the other person. And probably you had to do this when you were a kid. And you probably did this to your kids. And they turn to the other person and say, sorry. Right? And, uh, and you're like, there you go. You said you're sorry. Now let's everyone go back to whatever we were doing. And these days we say, pick up your own iPads and ignore each other. And, and they'd be better, you know? Um, but the... Uh, that say your sorry thing is kind of a, an interesting dynamic because what I actually want is my kids to feel sorry for what they've done or feel repentance or contrition or like a, some kind of a, uh, a feeling that I'm trying to produce in my kids, but I can't produce that feeling. So I do the next best thing and I control their behavior and I make them say sorry. And what actually happens is the reverse of what I hope happens in that situation, right? Like, well, sorry, what happens is I feel good because I'm a good parent because I got my kids to say sorry, right? And there you go. So I'm like gold star on the parent chart. But what actually happens to my kids is they learn that not meaning it, but just saying it is satisfactory to get dad off your case, right? Isn't that what you learned when you were a kid? If I just say this, my parents will get off of my case. If I just do this, the people will leave me alone and they won't bother me, and I can just continue to feel what I feel about my sibling, even though 
uh, those are like wildly negative feelings that I have towards them. And what I actually want in my kid, like when I think about what I want for my kids, right? Like here's what I want. I want a professional sports career, right? This is what I want for my kids. Uh, don't act like you don't want it, right? Or, or, or like maybe famous rock star or whatever, you know? Like I want big things. And, but that's kind of something that's out of my control and out of my height range. And so when the, then we move down to like I want them to be like nice people or I want them to have, have them some kind of meaningful life or maybe have a, a family that they can contribute to and a society that they contribute in or maybe have a good job or get a good education or maybe, you know, just be happy. And then, and then oh yeah, I want them to love Jesus. And, and all of those things pile up on top because they're way more shallow and easy to just rattle off and easier to produce. Like, it's a lot easier for me to send my kids to camps to do good in science or do good in band or good do whatever they're doing than it is to send my kid off to camp and get them to fall in love with Jesus. It is a lot easier to affect my kid's behavior than it is to affect my kid's actual heart. And I don't think that's just kids. I think that's everybody, right? I think you can affect behavior a lot easier than you can affect heart. And as parents, I think this might be the larger challenge. You could get your kids to act right, and you will get gold stars from the other parents on your parent chart, and you'll, they'll say, wow, you must be such good parents, when inside your kids hate everything about their environment and have incredible negative feelings toward them and will rebel at the first chance that they get. This is, if you uh, send your kids, I spent some time in Christian school and then I went to a Christian college. I think this is a primary challenge if you send your kids to a Christian school or a Christian college. Uh, Christian college, like I went to a regular college first and got a degree and uh, in something, it would surprise you, but then I went to Bible college and got a degree in ministry and uh, the, the two environments were radically different. When I finished a course, and this was in Canada, so the drinking age is lower, but when I finished a course at normal college, you went to the bar, of which there were two on campus, and uh, this is in Canada, so it's different, but um, you would go to the bar with your professor, and he would buy a beer for everyone. This is like in a small class, not in my large classes, you know, there weren't 400 students going to this rave where the professor was throwing money, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they didn't pay the professors like that. So there is a, you would go and you would hang out and you'd have a beer with your professor and this was just kind of how you acted. You're, you learn things like chocolate milk masks the smell of alcohol in class. And, so that, and you learn that people who know that aren't coming back next semester. Uh, so, but uh, then when you go to Christian college, there were all these things to make sure that those things didn't happen. I don't think there was, I mean, I went to Christian college in the South, so I'm not sure there was a, oh, there was one. There was one bar in my town, and I couldn't even tell you the name of it or whatever. It was just like, and coming from a college that had multiple into a a town that had one, it it was a kind of a culture shock. And then in my college, they weren't allowed to watch TV or uh, weren't allowed to wear screen print or weren't allowed, all these behavior things. And it was kind of a funny time because when I went to college, they started doing DVD drives into computers. So all of a sudden, everyone could watch any movie they wanted. And apparently, I didn't, you need to know, I'm not good at following rules, but uh, I lived off campus and I was married. I couldn't have got through a Christian college living in a dorm. There was, 
I would have been like serial Christian colleges because I would have got kicked out. But there's a, uh, <laughs> my friends would do pranks and I'd be like, oh, that'd be funny, but you should have lit it on fire too. And that's the kind of thinking that goes on here. So there's, they would watch DVDs in their rooms and we only allowed like G or PG-13 movies and you're not, certainly not allowed movies in your room. And, but that didn't, that what they were trying to do as a school was advertise that your kids will be in this environment where they will behave in a certain way and they couldn't, just with their rules, affect hearts and affect heart change. In a biblical sense, when you see the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, especially like Leviticus or Deuteronomy, there is like lists and lists and lists of behavior modification rules, right? Do this, don't do this, don't touch the shellfish, eat this, no bacon, that kind of things, right? And you can see all of these rules, but those rules, and the Bible teaches this, don't actually produce the heart change that God actually wants in people. Following a bunch of rules doesn't actually show love. Following rules doesn't show love. And the Bible talks about the Old Testament in the New Testament. The Bible talks about the Old Testament. It says that law was given to reveal the sinfulness of people. To reveal the inherent sinfulness of people. Now if you can think through this, if you have extremely young kids right now or middle school puberty kids, uh, you've probably never, this applies to both of those groups, you've probably never in your home, I hope, as an adult, just completely lost your cool, threw yourself on the floor over something that doesn't go your way, right? Spaz out, throw your hands, throw your feet, right? You've probably never done that. But your children do, right? Your children will throw this wild fit and you're like, that is the strangest thing. And and you're like, where did they learn this? And, and do the little kids get together and teach each other this? And, and, but there is, there's this inherent nature that's in human beings towards like a selfishness and towards a, a, a need for whatever you need is the most important thing in your life. And what we call adulthood is actually being able to not freak out over your own needs and put the needs of other people or, the, or delayed gratification over the immediate need to freak out, right? What the law does is, what rules do, is reveal the inherent sinfulness that people have because nobody was able to actually live up to the law, especially since the Bible teaches that your sinfulness passes on generation to generation. So really the reason that your kids are so messed up is because you're so messed up which doesn't, nobody writes that in a book because that book doesn't sell, right? What you want is your kids are messed up because of everything else, not because of you. Uh, but uh, my, and, uh, that's true in my family, I know. My kids are messed up because of everything else, not because of me, uh, which is the opposite of true. <laughs> I want to read to you, the, so I want to spend time in the Old Testament today, and we're going to read actually a chapter from Ezekiel. And I... Um, I love the Old Testament prophets, and of all the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel is my favorite. Uh, Ezekiel's calling and Ezekiel's uh, movement and his preaching, and, and so you know, a prophet, in our, like some people think a prophet is someone who tells the future. Uh, in the biblical sense, a prophet is someone who brings forth truth, whether that's about the future or about current realities. We would call them today like preachers, you know, like we would say this is what a prophet is, and so that's kind of because I'm a preacher. This, this is kind of a, I resonate with a lot of the prophets, and I read through all of the prophets frequently and those kinds of things because it's important to me. 
So I'm going to read from Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's in the middle of Ezekiel, which is this really, really long collection of sermons that Ezekiel gave, is chapter 36. And uh, it's kind of, to me, the heart of the whole message. And so I'm going to read all the way through it. And it talks about changing, actually changing your heart. And uh, then we'll move towards what that means for us as individuals, what that means for us as training up the next generation and our kids and those kinds of things. So I'm going to read all the way through it, if that's all right, and then we'll go back through it piece by piece and then talk about what on earth we should do about it. So I'm going to start in verse 22, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have it in chapter 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, and here would be what Ezekiel would say, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you to your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. This is the key verse. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel comes out with this sermon that God told him to say to the people that talks a lot about the people's sinfulness and their nature as sinful people and the desire of God for them not to be sinful people. When you think about your children, they are in a particular way immature, and you desire for them to someday be something else, to be transformed from what they are to what they will be. If, as an adult, you're still acting the same way you did when you were 16 or 12 or 8 or 4, we would say somebody didn't do their job, the hard work of getting past that age. And when it comes to Christianity, if your faith is the same as it was when you were 16 or 12 or 8 or 4, I would say somebody didn't do the hard work of maturing in their faith. This is wildly essential. Wildly essential because most faith development in churches happens at a childhood level and then happens at a teenage level if you have youth groups or maybe happens at a college level. And then you're just kind of kicked out into, like, life. And I had a friend when I went to seminary. Uh, it's, he pastored with me at South Albany Church, uh, Jeremy Ganji. Some of you know him. He pastors in Washington now. And he did a research paper on, on faith development during uh, pre-retirement years. And what you actually see is people's faith or their expression of faith increasing, increasing, increasing until around the age, like, 50, 55, and then it actually decreases. Like you would think they would have 30 or 50 years of history with God that their faith would, would increase exponentially, but it actually hits a decrease moment where their trust and their faith, or whatever measurements the study used, actually declines because the things that they had hoped in, they began to found wanting 
or their experience of faith began to be wanting. And the reason for that is because their faith isn't equipped to handle the challenges of that part of their life. This is why if your kid is in Christian school or a Christian high school or a Christian college, you need to understand that they, they need more than behavior modification. And Christian schools, and I'm not against Christian schools. I went to them. They're fantastic. I would send my kids to them if it was the right thing for them. But there are lots of dangers of public school, like public school. <laughs> but there are dangers to homeschooling. There are dangers to uh, private Christian education. There's dangers to Catholic school, all of it. In particular, when your kid is in a Christian environment all the time, a Christian behavioral environment, they can master the ability to behave in a way that masks what's in their heart. Or, when you see kids who go to a Christian youth ministry where they stuff marshmallows and jump up and down and dye their hair, uh, put Vaseline, I'm naming all the things I did as a youth pastor, Vaseline in the hair, run around, do crazy things, when they hit college, if they haven't had training on answering questions, they will run into a professor. And it's not that the professor's a genius. It's that the kid's training is so ill. Like the kid hasn't been given the ability to like discuss the Christian faith. What they know is I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't have sex, and I don't go with any girls that do that, right? Like this is, here's what Christianity is. When you're off having fun, I'm not, <laughs> Right? And when we see, when you're presented with, here's what the faith is, and then you're sent off to actual people who have the ability to think, and you haven't been given the ability to think about your faith in a critical, and like a wise way, your faith will deteriorate. Not because the other person's right, but because your faith is so weak. And if your faith is still at a high school, middle school level, when you start hitting the questions that are real for a person who's facing the last quarter of their life, the answers, uh, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, those don't work for a person who is actually facing the reality of eternity. Just like your answers of, uh, of your cute acrostics or your bracelets on your wrist or those kinds of things, they won't work when you send a kid off to a secular college and the people there are actually trying to teach them to think, if we haven't taught our kids to think on their own and have intelligent conversations about their faith and have a heart change faith instead of a behavior modification faith. Now, this is what I'm saying. You can react to it and say, then I'm going to keep them in a Christian environment, right? If they did Christian public school, then I'll do Christian high school, then I'll do Christian college, then I'll get them a Christian job at the Christian place and they'll live in a Christian neighborhood, right? Like... <laughs> Those things exist less and less and less and less, though. <laughs> like that Christian neighborhood idea. When my kids were younger and they didn't realize that there were people who didn't love Jesus, they, we'd drive to, to church and there would be people with, uh, riding their bikes and jogging because we live up the other side of North Albany and that's what people do. And they'd think, look, Dad, they're riding their bike to church. That's cool. <laughs> Look, Dad, those people are jogging to church. I hope I don't sit next to them, right? Like, it, it is kind of, they just had an innocence about them because they understood this. But now they've started to, at least my oldest, has started to see and understand that there are people with varying expressions of what Christianity is and varying expressions of what's okay and what's not okay. And people and his friends who have parents 
who teach values that are different than ours. And it's much easier for me as a parent to say, we're good, they're bad. Right? This is all you need to know, LJ. We're good, they're bad. This is all that you need to think about. But that's not a quality way to teach him when eventually he's going to need to discuss why something's good and why something's bad. And when he goes to college and he's talking to his professor, because he's going to be a pro basketball player, so he'll have to go to a secular college for one year before he goes to the NBA. Uh, remember, I told you this is my plan. Uh, I'm not saving for retirement at all because I have a good plan. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. And there were no amens because I was worried there'd be a couple. Right on. Like, that's faith. No, that's not faith. That's stupidity. So... <laughs> But when he gets to a certain age, because my dad or because my mom said so won't be an effective answer. Why do you follow Jesus? Because I was told to won't be an effective answer. There needs to be a heart transformation that happens in the child or in the person. And whether they're a child or an adult, the heart is what matters. Because I'm going to a secular schools and talking and I love having conversations with people who don't believe in Jesus because it actually helps me understand what I believe. Because people can knock down all these doctrinal tenets of my belief and I end up with this thing I call that's a mystery, that the Bible calls a mystery, that I believe in this thing called a trinity that you can't explain using any of any thought or any logic that three gods is one God and they're all one together. And I, this God became human and died and paid the way for me to have a relationship with my creator, God. Why he would do that is beyond me. Why he would find me that valuable is beyond me. And the life transformation that I've experienced, I can't deny. You can poke holes in my behavior almost every day. You can poke holes in even my doctrine. You're like, well, this verse says that, this verse says that. Maybe you don't understand as good as you think you do. Okay. But you can't poke holes in my heart transformation because it's a real experience that I'm having. Like it's true in my life. Let me talk about these verses. <laughs> I'm going to rant a bit, but I want to talk about these. When he's talking about, therefore, to the house of Israel, these are the people of God, all right? In verse 22, say to the house of Israel, it's not for your sake that I'm about to act for the sake of my holy name. This is an important thing, and I've got a few, like, one, two, three, four, five here. If you like notes, here's number one. The story that God is telling is not about you and it's not about your kids. It's about himself. And so if your story that you're teaching your kids is that life is about them, then you're actually missing an opportunity to form them in the nature and in the ways of Christ. If my kids think that my life revolves around them and not revolves around Christ, then my kids will learn that they're the center of the universe. And so when I try to teach them that God is the center of the universe, it will be confusing. Or if I teach my kids that I'm the center of the universe, it will be confusing. Because I need to take the opportunities that I can to teach them that God is what's important and not anything else. That God is in the center and everything else is very, very far out on the edges. Because when God acts, he acts in his interest. And I know there's a lot of stuff that says like God will work for the benefit of those who love him. He doesn't do that for you. 
you experience his benefit because it's glorifying to him. Like if God does anything good in your life, it's not because you deserve it. It's not because God likes you. It's not because of something you've done. It's because God's glorifying himself. I know you're a big deal. I understand that. I know you have a personal relationship with God, and I know that you, and I know that God's done things in your life that are fantastic, but God isn't interested in glorifying you any more than glorifies him. God won't lift you up at all unless it's lifting up himself. And you would say that then God must be conceited, but it's impossible to be conceited when you're an infinite being. He can never think more of himself than he is because he's infinite. That's a little logic for you right there. So God can't be conceited. God must glorify himself and must act in his own interest. And so when he acts in the nation of Israel, which would be the people of God, which we would say is the church in the New Testament or is the church today, when God acts in the, in the church or for the church, is to glorify himself. It's not because God thinks you're the center of the story. He will vindicate this in verse 23 because of the holiness of his great name. And you can notice the holiness. God refers to himself as holy and refers to the things we do as profane. I'm going to vindicate my holy name because you've profaned it. I'm going to glorify my holy name because you've gone after idols. God was, is about holiness and humans are about the opposite of holiness. This creates opportunities in our life though because your kids will be presented with things that are inherently good or inherently sacred and things that are inherently not or inherently evil. And those are opportunities to say, isn't it amazing? Like you go on a hike and you see an amazing flower or an amazing view, and you say, isn't it weird that God would make that and make us to appreciate that? Isn't that kind of a sacred thing right there in this? And you learn, instead of, oh, isn't that great, you learn, oh, isn't God great? Because when we're going to have intentional conversations about Jesus with our kids, because I know a lot of us feel this, You'd feel like maybe you can't do it because you don't know enough. Here's what it takes. Hey, I think this is good. Good is God. Hey, I think this is bad. God hates bad. Like when your kid goes through heartbreak or your kid goes through suffering or your kid is found to not be good enough and your kid's question is, where is God? I thought God was going to take care of me. And your answer is, God is right here. He's suffering with us. God is just as hurt as you are hurt. That's a holiness thing you're teaching your kids. Because, and, and those are the, there's kids here, so this is bad. This should have got the middle schoolers out. This is all you need to know. <laughs> oh, life sucks? God thinks it sucks too. Oh, life is awesome? That's because God is awesome. <laughs> like, as a parent, you should write those two things down. And your kid comes home, are you feeling good or bad? Bad. Oh, well, so God feels bad too. Oh, they learned about God today, right? How, how are you doing? I'm awesome. All right. I shouldn't have made you so arrogant. But also, God is awesome and he made you awesome. This is so fantastic, right? There is uh, number three. Uh, this is just kind of a nature thing. When God says, I will take you from the nations and gather you to my own country and bring you into your own land. And he says, I'll pour water on you and cleanse you. A place and a purity, a place and a purity were the things that people, not just the Israelites, but all people at the time of this being written, saw as the blessing of God. I have a place and I'm pure. And God still has that. As Christians, we have a place in the church. We have a people who we belong to. And we have a purity because of the sacrifice of Jesus. 
the things that we're hoping to have. We want to belong to someone else. Christianity is that by definition and by nature because we're adopted into the family of God. And there's a purity because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is a physical reality in Ezekiel's day when he wrote about this. If a, pe- if a country was all spread out and exiled, the answer to that was their God must not be strong enough. And so when a people came together, it glorified their God, not necessarily their people. Whether that was the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Egyptians, when they were militarily powerful and together, the people assumed their gods were stronger. When the church is together, the people observing the church assume that their God has some kind of worth or some kind of value. When the church is fragmented, it's confusing to the people who are looking at the church and saying there must be something wrong with their God. Not necessarily something wrong with them because they're acting like normal humans. When the church acts like normal humans, they say, oh, they're normal humans. But when the church is united, they say, oh, there must be something good about their God. And then God actually says this in verse 26, and this is the heart of everything. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will give you, sorry, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Notice he's not changing the stone into flesh. He's actually like doing heart surgery where he's removing your stone heart before. And that metaphor speaks on its own, doesn't it? He removes your stone heart, the heart that does evil, the heart that has a tendency towards self, the heart that worships other idols in our life. And he gives you a heart of flesh and a heart that's soft and a heart that we would actually desire and then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see why a person with a stone heart obeys God's statutes and God's rules? Because they have to. A person with a soft heart is caused by the spirit of God living in them, is caused to follow God's law and to follow his statutes and follow his rules. I follow God's rules in my life because God's Spirit is within me and it prompts me to do so. Is radically different statement than I follow God's laws in my life because they're God's law and I have to follow those rules. I don't follow the rules to gain favor from God. I have favor from God and so I'm led into following those rules. I don't follow the rules so that my salvation is earned or guaranteed or something like that. My salvation is true, and so I'm walking in the rules and the statutes of God. It's a completely different thing. When I speak or I act or I interact with the people who I love, I interact in a way that is socially acceptable because I love them. When there's people that I don't love, uh, let's just say it, there's people that I hate that I interact with, that's probably bad. Whatever. You can act like you don't hate anybody. I'll, be the tr- I'll tell the truth. <laughs> when I interact with people, okay, let's just say it, Golden State fans. When I interact with them, I know you're all thinking it. I don't even understand. <laughs> like, come on. But when I interact with them, I act in, a, in the same way that I do with the people I love but I interact with them because of the rules of acceptable social norms so they won't think I'm a crazy idiot, right? I don't interact with them in a kind way because I love them. I interact with them in a kind way because 
I don't want them to think I'm a weirdo because then they'll be right. When I do that, and this is, you know, a silly example, it turns your heart stone. It hardens your heart. Anytime you're acting fake, it actually hardens your heart. When I make my kid turn to their sibling and say they're sorry when they don't want to, I'm actively hardening the heart of my kid. And I'm, like, this isn't me saying, so I don't do it. I, I do this. I don't just do this to my kids. I do this to myself. I say, I have to go. I have to. to. When what we really want is an actual heart of flesh and the Spirit of God in me that causes us to live in the ways and in the truth of Jesus. That causes us, because of God's Spirit in us, to move in that direction. And so this becomes almost an impossible challenge for parents because what I'm telling you is that you need to help your kids have a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. When everything around them in their faith and out of their faith, is going to push them towards a heart of stone. I think this is the great challenge just in Christianity, like in this generation right now. Raising up a generation that knows and loves God. When we've moved in Western Christianity so far to this like pious kind of expressed behavior piety where there's all this evil that's happening but there's a show up front that is holiness and we can handle that. This is why we end up with scandals in the church. Like terrible scandals in the church. Because there's an ability to behave in a way that doesn't match our hearts. I was talking with my son and uh, one of his friends and I coach a lot of sports and stuff so we do a so I know a, lot, a good number of his friends, and we were talking the other day, and this kid was in a situation that went bad for him. And, and uh, my, I had this thought in my mind to ask him, like, what do you think Jesus would have done in your situation? Remember you had those what would Jesus do bracelets? Uh, the problem is this kid is 12. And the what would Jesus do bracelet always refers to when Jesus was 30. And when I'm 30, I make way better decisions than when I was 12. All right? Like, I had a flat top and a mullet when I was 12. I'm making better decisions. <laughs> there, is, there is this, like, when we look at a person who's in a certain part of their life, and we, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do can unintentionally, and I love, I had my own, what would Jesus do bracelet? It helped me. Like, it helped me figure out how Jesus would actually live in my life. One of my favorite books is called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. It's an old, 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 old book, uh, but it is the precursor to the What Would Jesus Do movement. And you can think that through, but when you think that through, if it's a condemning thing, because in this situation, because the kid made the wrong choice, it would be a condemning thing. It isn't okay to put that on someone. Where instead, thankfully... We actually talked about how he felt in that situation and what he thinks that means. And, and, like, and I don't think I moved him towards understanding Jesus any better, but I think we might have moved a little bit towards having a soft heart instead of a hard heart. And that soft heart produces 
when the, God gives us a soft heart and his spirit lives in us, it produces the kind of life that we hope for our children and for our friends' children and the people that we have influence over that we coach or mentor or teach or whatever. The what would Jesus do bracelet Christianity is significantly easier. Like significantly. What would Jesus do if that happened to him? Because here's what happened in this story. When Jesus was 30, and here's how Jesus reacted. Because he was the son of God, and you're not. (laughs) So feel bad about yourself and start behaving the way that Jesus would behave. It's almost like we need a, and this is stupid, but a, what would Jesus feel? <laughs> like, or what would Jesus have in, this would be a big bracelet, what would Jesus have going on in his interior life that led him to actually continue to obey God? <laughs> right? That's more of like a necklace. You need a, or a double wrap kind of all the way up. <laughs> there are things that become really, really easy in Christianity if we make Christianity a behavioral faith. Like really, really easy. Do this, don't do this. Don't do this thing, do this thing. Act in this way, dress in this way. Be into this band, don't be into this. Christianity becomes this easy faith and we love that. Like you and I love that. We'll like to pretend we don't, but then when you get into an awkward situation because of having an open view of Christianity towards like you wanna keep a soft heart and you think that's more important than a proper behavioral thing that's going on, that gets really, really complicated. Like really complicated. Because something happens in your life where previously, or something your kid does where previously the answer is bad behavior, do this behavior, not that behavior. And now you have to back up and say, what's going on in their heart? And how can I create an environment where God can transform or replace this heart and put his spirit in my kid so that My kid is self-motivated to love Jesus. At the end of the day, that's really what I pray. Like as much as I say I want my kid to be famous, I don't pray for that at all. I could care less. What I pray for is that my kid will know Jesus. What I pray for is that my kid will never have anybody hurt him in a way that hurts his relationship with Jesus, including God. I pray that God won't hurt him so much that it affects his relationship with Jesus. That's really, that's basically all I pray. And then I pray that they'll get their homework done because that's a stress in my life. But, <laughs> but that movement as a parent towards helping your kid love instead of helping your kid act in a certain way is going to be the hardest challenge in raising your kids. Like there's going to be times when your kids screw up and you have to deal with that. That's going to be a challenge. That's going to be a bad day or a bad week or a bad 10 years. But if you end up teaching your kids a behavioral Christianity and then they reject it, you'll have wished that you taught them a love for Jesus that would last them their whole life. This week there was a study that came out. This is the last thing. There was a study that came out that said religious kids are mean. You might have seen this. Someone sent it to me as an email. That's where I first saw it, but it was funny. And then one of the kids that was in my youth group that has since rejected the faith put it up as an an accusation, put it up on his Facebook thing to demean us. And the reaction was, this was kind of hilarious to me because I have a lot of conservative Christian friends that I haven't hidden, and they have 
uh, on Facebook, and they put up, like, wasn't this done by atheists, or wasn't this evil, or wasn't this, what was the agenda? Instead of backing up and saying, how can we change these kids' hearts? Because the study can only measure behaviors, right? It can only measure the way that somebody acts because we can't measure hearts. And Christianity, or following Jesus, or passing my faith on to my kids is not something that I can measure with a study. Because I'm trying to pass on a kind heart, a loving heart, an open soul, a spirit of God that prompts them to live in the statutes and the rules that God has. And I can't measure it. And you can't measure it. Because the person in this room who might act like the worst Christian during the week might have the softest heart, might have the most spirit of God in them prompting them to move towards Jesus. And the person in this room who you think has it all together and is acting the most like a Christian, they might have the hardest heart in the whole room. And we don't know. And there's no way to know. But with our kids, we pray and we push, and we lead, and we hope, and we guide them towards a soft heart. But it's way harder and way more time-consuming because it's a lot easier to behavior yes, behavior no. Just like in our own lives, it's a lot easier to behavior yes, behavior no. And then you're going to be faced with a situation where that behavior yes or behavior no doesn't fit as good as you wished it would. And that sucks because you had these rules and you lived by those rules and it felt good and you knew where you stood with God. And now, because you want to have this soft heart and move by the Spirit of God, you're kind of like, if I do this in this situation, I'm betraying my own rules that I set up for my own life that let me know that I was in good standing with God. And now... Am I in bad standing with God because I'm moving in what I think is love towards this person? It might sound like silly or something like that, but when you have a relative that comes back to you or one of your children that comes back to you and says something that is shocking and outside of your rules, all of a sudden this becomes the realest thing in your whole life. (laughs) Let me back up. All of a sudden, when in yourself you feel something that's outside of your rules, it becomes a wildly challenging reality that's in your life. And your kids are experiencing the same things all the time. Because we start with behavior modification, and then we need to move them out of that. In our middle school youth group, we have some behavioral rules that helps those middle schoolers and in our high school group, and on and on and on. We have behavioral rules that help them. But we need to move our children beyond behavioral rules. When they're two and you say, sit down and do this and act this way, that's good because it's keeping them safe. But eventually they need to learn not to stick their finger in the plug because there's a reason. (laughs) You need to actually move our kids past rules And the only way to do this is to move yourself past those rules. I hate that every week I'm telling you that in order to raise your kids, you need to follow Jesus. Like personally, if you follow Jesus and your kids are following you, they'll end up following Jesus. But really, that's what I believe it comes down to. And so I don't have an application like, 
Have these four conversations with your kids. You can do that. Is it bad? God thinks it's bad. Is it good? God thinks it's good. But really, you know that's silly just as much as I do because life is way more complicated than that. But I think in that complication, the challenge for us as adults, or even if you're here as a middle schooler and you have influence over younger children than you, the challenge is that they will become you. They won't become what you hope they become. And if your whole faith is based on a structure that gives a hard heart, then your children will end up with hard hearts. And so the only way is to seek God and ask him to remove your stone heart and give you a heart of flesh and put his spirit in you so that you're motivated from an interior life of Christ to follow his statutes and follow his rules. We're going to pray, and, uh, and I'm going to pray that way. The band has a brand new song that they're going to sing for us, and, and you can join in, obviously, as we'll stand and sing together. But we're going to pray that way, and it might be that a day that you need to spend a little bit extra time in prayer. And we're going to stand, but if you don't want to or whatever, that's totally kosher here. Because I think it's a good time to examine our own hearts if we're trying to replicate something into the next generation, our children and their children. So while I'm praying or when I'm done praying, if you want to continue to have a conversation with God, that's, this is the environment and that's why we set it up like that. But as we're worshiping God together, we pray that God will actually do heart surgery on those of us that need it and transform us and change us because of removing our heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh and filling us with his spirit. Let's stand together and we'll pray, all right? Jesus, we come before you with real and openness, like just in our own quiet of our own selves, Lord. And we want to ask that you would, for those of us here who have a faith that has given us a stone heart, like we are, if we really actually evaluate ourselves, we're hard. And we are... Maybe we use words instead like driven or strict or helpful in a mean kind of way. But we have stone hearts that won't produce what we hope ourselves to be and won't produce like the kind of people that we hope to be and won't produce the kind of people that we hope our kids will be. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for our sin your forgiveness for thinking that our way is good and that our way is better than your way. And we ask that you would cause us to repent and move towards you. To know you as our Lord, to know you as our Savior. That you would be the ruler over our lives because we've invited it, not because it's been put upon us. Not because of fear of hell or fear of something or missing out but really because of the change that you've made in our hearts and in our lives inspires us to move towards you. We are your children, and we have children that we are hoping to know you in the way that we know you. And so we put this in your hands and ask for overflowing amounts of your grace in our lives and your mercy for our failings. 
so that we can have these conversations and these moments and these movements with our kids in the same way that you have with us, that we would be instruments that you would use to pass the faith on to rising generations, whether that's if we're in middle school here today, whether that's preschoolers that we volunteer with or see or if we're older or college age and the middle schoolers are watching us or if we're adults and there's other parents that are trying to figure out how to be like us. and God, we pray for your guidance, not your rules. We pray for your spirit and not your statutes because we pray that our motivation would bring forth our righteousness that would tell the world that you love them. By your grace we pray this. Amen.